Well, good evening. If you have a Bible, open to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 18. Ephesians chapter 2, 13 through 18. So it's 2012, I am walking down the street of Kumamoto, Japan with my Japanese friend. We just grabbed lunch at cheap Japanese food place, which we both love. He had actually studied abroad in Canada, so we both liked Tim Hortons. And we were about to go play some ping pong uh, nearby, because we both like to play some ping pong. When a police officer walks up to the two of us, and he looks at me, and he says, may I please see your foreigner identification card? Because in Japan, that's a thing. If you're not a Japanese citizen, you're required to carry with you at all times your registered foreigner card, as long as you live there. If you're visiting, it's okay. You don't have to carry it around. Make sure you have your passport, though. So I pull it out, give it to him. He says, all right, looks in order. And he turns to my friend, my Japanese friend, and says, can I see yours? And my friend goes, uh, I'm Japanese. <laughs> and the police officer cocks his head, really? <laughs> uh, yes. And my friend managed to convince him that just by being, you know, associated with this foreigner that he himself wasn't a foreigner. And we continued walking down the street and something had changed. or at least we had become aware of something, this wall that was between us. That my relationship with the government, being different than his relationship with the government, meant there was this irre irremovable barrier between us. That as much as we thought we had in common, there was something that, actually according to Japanese law, I cannot even undo. I can't become a Japanese citizen. If you haven't lived abroad, perhaps it's hard to imagine that situation. I assume most of us are U.S. citizens, and here we are in the U.S. But perhaps you've run into situations where you thought you were close to someone or a group, and these differences pop up, right? Maybe it's your spouse who you've been married to for years and you're reminded yet again, oh wait, we have different ways of communicating with each other. <laughs> or maybe sometimes it's even in the church that you feel that because of how much you know about the Bible compared to others. <laughs> or maybe you feel that the way Christ has gifted you are not the kind of gifts that seem to be highlighted at this church. Or you have kids, others don't, and all of a sudden it seems like you can never get together and have just nice time of fellowship. Or vice versa, 
you're retired and everyone's working all day. I've got all this time, you know. Maybe it's you weren't raised in church, and so sometimes it feels a bit awkward to be around people who were. Or maybe you've just haven't gone to church. You're not a Christian, and so it feels weird to even be here. The writer of this letter, Paul, is writing to a church that's feeling that tension with these two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles, making up this church, and they're feeling this these differences. It's almost as if this wall is in between them. And they're wondering, what do we do about this? And he's writing to remind them of what Christ has done for them. And so in these verses we're going to see, he's leaning into this big idea that Christ died to bring outsiders and insiders near to the God of peace as one. That what we remember today on Good Friday, the death of Christ, had a purpose. That Christ died to bring outsiders and insiders near to the God of peace as one. And so let's read these verses. I'll pray, and then we'll think about what Paul is saying. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13 through 18. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we, we give you praise for who you are. We give you thanks that you have given us this time together to reflect on the death of Jesus Christ, the King of all, and what that means for us. Please show us how great your gospel is, how great our need is, and how great the joy and hope and love that we find in Christ are. In his name we pray, amen. In this section, he starts off with his, almost a rephrasing of the big idea I just said in verse 13, that outsiders were brought near through Christ's death. Right? In verse 13, he's speaking to now the Gentiles, those who did not grow up as Jews, those whose parents weren't Jews, those who grew up probably not listening to the stories of the Bible, writing, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. To which we say, perhaps, so what? Why do we need that? And how did he do that? Brought near by the, the blood or the death of Christ? And so what? What, what does that mean for us? What, why do we need this? 
How did he do it? What does that mean for us? Well, we're familiar, you know, raised in the U.S., you know, hearing about politics pretty much every day on the news. We're familiar with citizenship, the idea of citizenship and what it means, that the welfare of citizens is tied into how their government runs, what it does, right? I mean, just think about you know, our debates, our political debates, especially when it pertains to perhaps immigration. Because the idea of citizenship also means that those who are not citizens, those who are outside the, organ, the country, the commonwealth, they don't really have a part in it, as big of a part in it. And so that's a lot of times what our debates around immigration are about, right? Like, how much do we owe those who come to this country before they're citizens? What does it mean to be a citizen? How do you become a citizen, right? And Paul is reminding the Gentiles that those who are outside of God's people are without what he provides or what he offers. And he talked about that in verses 11 to 12, because we're actually looking at the middle of this chunk that started with the be, almost the before and the after picture. And the before picture was saying, hey, you Gentiles, those who weren't born to Jewish parents, those who grew up not hearing the Bible, those who aren't part of the people of God, you were separated from Christ. You had no part in him. You had no, and he said at the end of verse 12, having no hope and without God in the world. He's making a bold claim (laughs) that there is one Lord, one ruler, one people who it actually matters if you are under that Lord and a part of that people. (laughs) And if you are not a part of that people, it's a big deal. Because if there is a God who has made all things, and who is without equal, as Paul has been claiming throughout the letter, to not be with him, to not be a part of his people, would mean we are separated from the source of all that is good and life-giving and gives us hope. And that's what Paul is claiming. But he's also claiming, in verse 13, that Christ died to bring those outsiders, those who feel as if they have no part in the people of God, in, to bring them near to God, to bring them near to his people. And he's saying that's why you need this, because you have nothing without God. You have nothing without Christ. But how in the world did his death bring this about then? And that's what he spends the bulk of his, this section talking about in verses 14 through 17, that Christ brought peace through his death. Christ brought peace through his death. Which, if we actually think about that and compare it to the kind of deaths, especially of political leaders that we know, seems counterintuitive. And we perhaps remember the great unifier of our country, Abraham Lincoln. 
and how hard he worked (laughs) as the country split in half (laughs) to pull it back together, even as in his government of the North was, you know, people not not, uh, agreeing on how to deal with the South or how to move forward. (laughs) And that when he died, even though the country had already come together... (laughs) It did not make unity going forward. It did for a few days. Many people were sad. But he had been trying to balance in the government these people who wanted to punish the South more harshly versus those who just wanted to let the South do whatever they want when they came back. And so he died, and those you know, who had power in Congress were saying, we really need to stick it to the South. Whereas his vice president was like, meh. And so his death actually created disunity and made it hard for the country moving forward. Paul's saying the opposite, that Christ's death created unity. How? Well, first, Christ brought peace by dying to destroy any hostility between man and man. That's what he's saying in 14 and 15. Christ brought peace by dying to destroy any hostility between man and man. And we have expectations of our citizens, do we not? And this is why we ask them to say the Pledge of Allegiance, right? And we teach them to say say that when they are, teach kids to say that when they are at school. It's one of the first things when someone's naturalized we ask them to do, right? (laughs) Say the Pledge of Allegiance. Yet even for those who were not born as citizens in the States, they can become citizens later, right? That may be different from Japan or other places. But there's still some limitations on them. You can't be president if you weren't born in the 50 states, and maybe outlying territories, not sure. God had expectations of his people, as we see in the Old Testament. I mean, Paul had been talking in verse 11 about this rite of circumcision, the cutting off of the male foreskin, and that God had asked his people to do that to all male children when they were eight days old. And so it was possible, even if your parents weren't Jewish, and that hadn't been done, for later in life, if you wanted to be a part of the people of God, you could do that. But there were still things that these these Gentiles, those who weren't ethnically Jewish, even if they had done those things, they were still limited in how they could serve, where they could go in the temple, they could never become fully Jewish. But Paul is saying that Christ fulfilled the expectations of his people in his death. As he says in verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That when the Bible says Jesus offers life and forgiveness, 
that there is a sign of that pledge, a physical Jesus Christ in the flesh died to make that possible, that his physical death created life, new life. All people, whether ethnically Jewish or Gentile or male or female or poor or rich or having grown up in the church or never having gone to church, it wasn't just some hand-waving thing. Jesus Christ was nailed physically to a cross to, destroy, to fulfill the law and destroy in his body any possible barrier between the peoples of God. And that his rejection, as we heard about, as reading Mark, rejected by Gentiles, Rome, rejected by the God's people, the Jews, <laughs> his rejection gave every member full participation. That in the family of Christ, in the, in the kingdom of Christ, there is no full-born citizen and naturalized citizen. <laughs> One who has more rights than the other. That Christ in his flesh abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He made in himself one new man in place of Jew and Gentile, male and female. Those raised in the church or outside the church. <laughs> that there are no barriers between God's people, any of us who claim Christ. That if Christ's death is life for every single person, what else is there to boast in? Now, if Christ's rejection is acceptance for every individual in the church, what reason is there to distance ourselves from one another? If our acceptance is not based on where we come from, what we do, how skilled we are at certain things. And if, Christ, if Christ's obedience fulfilled the law, what do I have to boast in that my brother or sister does not? I have no opportunity to stand up and say, hey, guess what? I preach, most of you don't. And be proud about it. Because it's not my obedience, it's Christ's obedience that fulfilled the law for every single Christian. And so Christ brought peace by dying to destroy any wall, any hostility, any attempt to distance between man and man. And not only that, Christ brought peace by dying to destroy any hostility between man and God. Do you know how the U.S. defines treason? 18 U.S. Code Section 2381. Treason is... Whoever, owing allegiance to the United States, levies war against them or adheres to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort within the United States or elsewhere, is guilty of treason and shall suffer death, or shall be imprisoned not less than five years and fined under this title, but not less than $10,000, and shall be incapable of holding any office under the United States. To boil it down, those who 
belong to the United States acting as if they did not. Those who pledge allegiance to the United States working against her good. That if a U.S. citizen assisted in a foreign plot to assassinate the president and they all get caught, they are going to be charged with different things and treated in different ways. Because that U.S. citizen, as a citizen, is pledging for the good of that country, whereas perhaps we may expect foreign actors to not work for the good of this country. But Paul is saying, he's hinting and saying in verse 16, that every single human being, every Jew, every Greek, every man, every woman, whether they're rich or poor, educated or uneducated, raised in the church or outside of her, every single person stands before God guilty of treason when he says that Christ might reconcile us both to God in one body. So he's saying both Jews, Gentiles, they both need to be reconciled to God. They both have been cut off from God. They have separated themselves from God through their action. That he made us. If there is one God, one Lord, one creator of everything, it does not matter where you are born, what country you are a citizen of, how much you know, what you can do, you owe allegiance to him. And so therefore, to deny his authority... (laughs) to reject his authority, to live in such a way that you do not care for him, live as an enemy of him, is treason. And so Paul says it a different way in Romans 3.23. He's been talking a lot about Jews and Gentiles, and he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. And he continues there, just like he does in Ephesians. Romans 3.24, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Once again, Jew or Greek, male or female. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And we tend to think of that justification, that being declared right, that redemption, that being bought back, that reconciliation, being brought back to God, as a proclamation made about each individual who places their faith in Christ, which is true. But in Ephesians 2, Paul is looking at a different facet of the gemstone. How did he say it? That Christ, backing up to verse 15, might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That if myself and Nathan say we are Christ, we belong to him, we place our faith in his cross, that our reconciliation to God is not he's reconciled and then somehow separately I'm reconciled. (laughs) That in Christ, in one body, we are reconciled to God at the same time. That we are, as Paul will say in chapter 1, adopted as sons of God, 
that at the same instant we are adopted as sons and daughters, we are adopted as brothers and sisters. We gain a father and a family in one moment, the death of Christ. That the death Jews deserve, the death Gentiles deserve, the death that those raised inside the church deserve, the death that those raised outside the church deserve, is borne by one man. And so that all who place their faith in Jesus Christ are reconciled to God in one man. And that the grounds of hostility between man and God are destroyed in the same moment that the grounds of hostility between man and man are destroyed. And that Christ brought peace by dying to destroy any hostility between man and man, to destroy any hostility between man and God. And if there's still any temptation to look for wiggle room, to be like, maybe, maybe there is something that sets me apart from Carolyn. Christ brought peace by bringing the good news of his death to all, which is what he says in verse 17. And he, that is Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off, those who were outside, who had been raised outside the people of God, and those who were near. And the death, the news of death is usually not good news. I mean, when, when Lincoln died, the entire country was in mourning. And they put him on a, his body on a train and drove it across part of the country so that people could come out and mourn and wail and see their leader who had united them and was now dead. And even in some places especially among those African-American communities who had been freed as slaves, there was great sorrow and fear. Because the question had now remained, would they have to be slaves again? (laughs) He's the one who unified them, and now he's dead. But Paul is saying it's the opposite with Christ. (laughs) That we have what no one else, no other country or religion or organization or individual can claim that the death of our king is good news. And it's good news for anyone, whether they feel far or near or outside or inside. It's good news. And that Christ himself, through his church, is proclaiming that message throughout the world, throughout the ages, beckoning all to come into his family. And that's how his death brought peace. He brought peace by dying to destroy hostility between man and man. He brought peace by dying to destroy any hostility between man and God. And he brought peace by bringing the good news of his death to all. Christ died to bring outsiders and insiders near to the God of peace as one. So, that's why we need it. How he accomplished it. 
So what? What does that mean for us? Well, Paul says so. Paul says what in verse 18? For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. I mean, the U.S. government is defined by the separation of powers, is it not? Our different branches of government. (laughs) And that we are also a nation of states who have their own rights and governments. (laughs) So that although we are one nation, there's this wrestling for our diversity. But the church, though diverse, must wrestle for its oneness. And so Paul says we have access in one spirit. I mean, if you think about the congressional branch, right, the U.S. House, the U.S. Senate, you know, each state gets their own representatives, right? So they go in there and they vie for our interests, right, of our state. There's a budget. They've only got so much money (laughs) to parse out, right? It's kind of a win-lose scenario. They've got to make concessions to each other. They want to try and get something passed. There are conflicting interests and limited resources. And Paul is saying it's not like that in the church. There is one spirit in all of God's people. There's one interest and the unlimited resources of the God who created the universe. One avenue by which we may appeal. So that no matter what you feel as if you belong to the retired caucus of the church or the young kids caucus of the church or the college-age caucus of the church. We all have one spirit in us that the things we feel may separate us or keep us apart, they're just that. They're the illusion of division. That we have unity in the spirit. And we have access to that one spirit to one father. I mean, think about the judicial branch. If you follow certain cases as they rise through the judicial system, <laughs> from the local level to the state level to the you know, state Supreme Court to the federal circuit of appeals, you know, all the way to the Supreme Court, and it'll be bouncing back and forth. One judge says, sure. The next judge says, no. Then the next judge reverses that. You know. And there are these differing levels of authority, conflicting opinions with each other. We in the church have one authority, one judge, the Father of all. And He cares for each and every one of us, each and every one of His people. There are not liberal judges or conservative judges or state judges, there's God the Father. And so matter, no matter how you feel about your brothers and sisters, especially when you have a complaint about them, <laughs> every single Christian stands before the Father justified by Christ. And so even though we are 
tempted <laughs> to go to the Father and be their, uh, their condemner. I don't know, I probably a better word, you know, to accuse our brothers and sisters. Every single brother and sister is declared innocent and holy based on the merits of Christ before the Father. It is through one Savior. You may be familiar with the presidential oath. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. But the President, in taking up office, swears allegiance and responsibility to the United States above and beyond every other nation. Whereas, on the other hand, we have Christ's oath taking people from every tribe and tongue and nation and upbringing. And as Ephesians 4.16 says, as the head of the church from whom the whole body joined and together, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So that no matter how we feel about what is happening in the church, in what ministries or direction or how it's growing, that we have one Savior and one head who is growing every single Christian into his own image. That Christ, our Lord, died to bring outsiders and insiders, men and women, Greeks and Jews, those raised in the church or raised outside of it, to bring all who would come to him in faith near to God as one. And we may feel, like my Japanese friend and I, that the differences within the church are irreconcilable. Or maybe if we don't claim to belong to the church, we may feel like the differences between us and the church are irreconcilable. And we may look to the identification cards that the world hands out to us. <laughs> Retiree identification cards. Engineer identification cards. College student identification cards. But every Christian is marked with the blood of Christ as a permanent sign that he or she has been brought near to God and his people, and that those cards are worthless. That Christ himself is our peace, and we have no reason to put up a wall between us, like my Japanese friend and I. Christ died to bring every single one of his people near to God as one. So let us take refuge in his death this day. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. I love in Ephesians where it says that you, you save sinners, you give them life, 
so that in the coming ages you can keep showing them how great your love and your grace is. <laughs> and so I pray you would continue to open our eyes to how amazing you are and how closely you have knit your people together in Christ. And Lord, I pray that if there are any listening to this who are not yours, that you would give them new birth, fill them with your spirit, and make them your own. Pray as, as we go our separate ways tonight, you give us rest and comfort in what Christ's death means for his people. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. We'll stand and receive this benediction from the end of Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.